You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. And welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all the franchises outside of Star Trek. And I'm just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushingan, coming at you from Perdidia. Yes, another galaxy all together this week. Uh, I'm so excited that we're going to be here talking about Ahsoka that just wrapped up on Disney+. And, well, it's in the bylaws. You guys know it. Um, So that means that the one and only Jedi Master John Mills of the Jedi Masters and a.k.a. Aggressive Negotiations is here. It's uh, contractual at this point. It's it's a necessity. I'm not allowed not to. Please, everybody. He stole my kyber crystals. I have to make it through this. (laughs) Tell me where they are. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm I'm. I think this is one of those things where, you know, we've been waiting for a long time as Star Wars fans to be able to see something like this uh, and actually have it come to fruition finally on our television screens is pretty amazing. Uh, I'm just really jealous that I didn't get to see uh, this mid-season episode on the big screen because they weren't, you know, showing it in my area, unfortunately. We sold out Um, in my area too fast. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, uh, before we dive into everything, of course, thank you so much for listening. Just subscribe wherever you are listening to this, and that way you'll get all of the episodes as soon as they become available. You can follow us and interact with us. We would love that on social media. We're on that thing that used to be called Twitter at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can also find us on Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash trackfm. You can find us over online at track.fm, and you can interact with listeners from all over the world in the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group housed on Facebook. Just type Babel into the search field, and you'll be able to find us. And if you like what we do here on TFM, please go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trackfm and become part of our team. Make sure that all of these shows keep coming to you each and every week. And so, well, John... Anytime we're talking about a show, there's really just so much to talk about. And so I kind of just broke this up into different characters' journeys. Yeah. Um, And so I figured, you know, why not start with the title character in Ahsoka and talk about her journey? And I found it very interesting that in some ways, the journey that we follow Ahsoka on is somewhat similar to that of what we got with Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in that show in the sense that we have a Jedi here who is very unsure of themselves, is allowing past experiences to kind of hold them back. And this whole series is really, in many ways, for the title character, about getting them over the hump. You know, getting them over uh, that... That feeling of even unintentional, like I, I don't even know if Ahsoka actually really knew that there was something holding her back. 
in any way uh, until, of course, she has her her major experience uh, with, um, you know, almost death. And so I, I was really pleased with the fact that, of course, the originator of the character, along with George Lucas, Dave Filoni, realized this character needs to move forward from where it was because of everything that they'd been through. And this was going to be about getting her from point A to point B. And I really thought that they did a fantastic job with that. Unquestionably, her journey is vital and it's tricky uh, in so many ways because there's a lot of transference onto Ahsoka's character with what fans, longtime fans, wanted to happen with Luke's character. We're, in a sense, to go back to The Empire Strikes Back, we've now all gone through as a fan base, you know, that boy is our last hope. No, there is another. It wasn't Leia in this context. It was Ahsoka. And I think her journey is super important because, and let's keep the comparison here with Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan is dealing, you know, with with trauma. He has a very different sort of thing where he's withdrawn completely from everything. Ahsoka's withdrawn from being a Jedi, but she's still out there doing the Force's work, if you will. She's out there seeking Thrawn. She's out there. We know that she's been advising Luke. We know that she's been interacting with Mando and Grogu. She's still participating in life. She's not withdrawn to the point where she's not participating anymore. What she's walked away from is the idea of being a Jedi at all. And I think the most important part of her journey is that this is the lever by which Dave Filoni, Star Wars as a franchise, the storytellers as a whole start to explore what exactly defines a Jedi. Is it being a part of the Order? Is it following the teachings of the Order? Or is it something deeper? Is it more about being in touch with the Force itself as opposed to, to borrow a line from Palpatine, following the dogmatic, narrow views of the Jedi Order? Right? Palpatine, there's the grain of truth in the lie in every little bit. And so I think it's really Ahsoka's journey is much more important to move Star Wars as a whole past how fans have perceived the Jedi over the last several decades into redefining what a Jedi truly is and finding out what it is to get back to the basics of that type of character. That's my two cents, at least. Yeah, no, I I, I think that um, you're right on target with that one. And the... Because as you were talking, I was just thinking about the way in which, you know, Obi-Wan in in many ways is held back because of his relationship with Anakin, his fear that comes along from everything that happened to him. Um, And, of course, his fear, I think, in any way that he'll make the same mistake of, you know, something happening that that, you know, then something happens to Luke. Right. And uh, especially in that series. And I think it's really interesting here in, you know, the Ahsoka series to watch that she's being held back in many ways because of her relationship with Anakin, Mm -hmm. her fear that she might 
one day turn into Anakin or that she'll turn somebody else into an Anakin, right? I mean, that's the whole thing with Sabine uh, and why she stopped training her and why their relationship kind of fell apart. And so I found that really interesting. And so then, you know, of course, the one of the biggest parts of this show is her finding herself in the world between worlds and living all these experiences in the Clone Wars with Anakin as the Force Ghost as her guide to help her realize that she is more than just Anakin's apprentice. She is more than that person. And she will always have the lessons that he taught her. Um, but that does not mean she has to fear necessarily being turned into him. You know, she has made her own decisions, which has led down her down her own path, which is different than that of Anakin. And so I found that to be incredibly moving that the lesson that she learns here is to take what was good from what Anakin taught her and learn the lesson of where he failed and where she can succeed by making different choices. Uh, and I thought that to be very interesting because really, in you know, the greatest part about Star Wars here is that it does come down to one's choices. Who one cho you know chooses to be is is who they will be, right? I know that sounds kind of stupid, but you know what I'm saying. Like it, our choices define who we are. Absolutely, uh, and that's exactly I think what uh, you know Anakin allows Ahsoka to finally learn this one final lesson. I there there are two parts to that. One is that I, I also enjoy the fact that when Anakin is interacting with her in the world between worlds, that what he's really hammering home to her is his own shortcoming in – to encapsulate it the way it is in my brain, he's basically saying, I didn't actually train you just to be a Jedi. I trained you to be a warrior and that's the problem is – Yes, yes. That's the issue right there. Is Anakin was a great warrior. Was he a great Jedi? Like, that's the debatable part. And then additionally, I think that as you're pairing all of those things down and stripping it away, what it means, I think that it's a it, – it becomes difficult because this is a really subtle way of challenging – the audience into turning it around and showing them that we've all been perceiving Jedi the wrong way, that it's always been about something different than the star Wars we've been watching that the Jedi embraced it too much. And we've talked about the problems with the Jedi and everything like that, but just to, to place it again in the idea that, what's broken Luke did his job of tearing it all down so that it could be rebuilt we know where Luke's journey is going to take him and that's why we have our this hope transference to Ahsoka is because she's the one that's going to hopefully show how it can be built up right and so you know I, I know I'm rambling at this point but am I making sense yeah, no, I, I think what you said there is is so important because, it, you know, it goes to what Ahsoka tells Sabine, which is, you know, being a Jedi is so much more than knowing how to wield a lightsaber. 
It comes to training your mind, training your body, being in the force, trusting the force, right? Being a warrior is a part of that because, you know, in the end, Jedi are basically warrior monks. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. And like you said, that's exactly what she learns in the world between worlds. She has been holding on to this fear and this idea that she is only a warrior and not anything else. And Anakin helps her to be able to realize, no, you're not just a warrior. You are so much more than that. And part of that is that she has learned so much more because of the choice that she made, right? To walk away from the order when she did. And that's allowed her to be able to, I think have experiences and understandings with the force that are truly interesting. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you is because part of this is where um, there's a little, it's not really incongruous with Rebels, but I think uh, this is a really interesting thing. You know, at the end of Rebels, she shows up as Ahsoka the White. But what we see here, and I think the reason that is, is because I don't know if Dave ever knew if he was going to get to tell this story. He did not. That, you, you, so you're right on the, the head. The truth there. is, is you know, I, I love that Dave has been allowed to go back and explain the way in which Ahsoka gets to that point, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that's what makes this show so beautiful. And again, that's the that there was this important moment for her to transcend her relationship with Anakin and her relationship with the Clone Wars and everything that happened to her to become fully who she's meant to be. And we needed to see that crucible, mm-hmm. right? We needed to see that. And and I love that Dave was allowed to finally do that with this story here. And, of course, in this incredible way where, you know, we get to have Hayden Christensen back oh. with, you know, Rosario Dawson, and we get to see uh, the live-action bit of Clone Wars there. So, you know, I, I think all of that together is just an incredible gift to Star Wars fans who have been with the animation. And And let me just say this one more time. I think this show goes to show animation is pivotal to Star Wars, and it's just as important as anything live-action. And if you're not watching the animation, you're literally missing out on some of the very best of star wars that star wars has to offer yes and so i love that this show does that and 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 you know it's probably one of the reasons why this show is going to be more of a slow burn with ratings and stuff because people are gonna start watching the show and then they're gonna realize oh oh i i I need to go back and and watch something in fact i was talking to a friend of mine the other day um we got together, uh, we were having a, a men's whiskey night, and we were talking about it, came around to Ahsoka, and I, he was like, yeah, I, I realized, I, I, I think I need to go back and watch the Clone Wars, and I was like, you need to go back and watch the Clone Wars, and then watch Rebels, and then watch Ahsoka, because it will mean so much more to you, if you do, and he's like, my 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 daughter and I we actually went back and we started Clone Wars so we're on the train and I was like good because like it, it's true you really do need those things to make this show mean the most that it can possibly mean. I agree, it makes the show mean the most that it can possibly mean. But where I commend the show is that these journeys still work, and I say they're still effective, especially that fifth episode, because. 
the the storytelling is strong enough. That fifth episode is pivotal specifically because bringing Anakin in is the linchpin move to tie it all together and taking it out of the context of giving people a taste of what they can expect in the Clone Wars. It gives them a chance to revisit or at least see all of the stuff that happened between two and three that everybody, you know, who didn't watch animation plugs into. But Anakin's presence yeah. raises the stakes of what Ahsoka's doing. It shifts the focus. It's not just another video game mission series. This is literally, we now see that there is the fate of everything on the line in her journey. This That one episode, that one interaction really infuses everything in her journey with the 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 weight of the world because we suddenly realize how pivotal she is. I mean, you know, yeah, we, we all knew that coming into it if we'd watched the, the series leading up to, but I think that that episode in specific does a great job of pushing it over the line so that mm-hmm. people who didn't well, watch it, like if you take that out of the equation, I think this show lands a lot flatter with people who didn't watch animation. And I agree with you on that because I think what it does is that it honors the Skywalker story in a way that, forgive me for saying, but the sequels never could and never did because this shows how pivotal Anakin Skywalker still is to Star Wars, even when it's a story that is tangential to it, right? Like, But there's a clear delineation between Anakin Skywalker and Ahsoka Tano and everything that's happening. And so it's one more way in which I think Dave is weaving the golden thread throughout all of Star Wars to make it one thing. I I will also put in there that one of the things I love most about it, and I have a friend, you know, you lose touch over time um, and you don't stay in as close contact as you would like, but... I've known him since we were 14 years old, known him for a very long time at this point. And he wrote something to me uh, in a letter many, many years ago. Kids, just so everybody knows, you used to write things on paper when you wanted people to read them because email wasn't a thing. Just putting it out there. And at least not for most people. Um, So he wrote in a letter and this is what the Anakin piece of Ahsoka's arc reminded me of and really affected me was he wrote one time that he believes that you can continue helping somebody even after you die. And so he knew he would help me for the rest of time. And obviously it's a sentiment that stuck with me forever. But what I love is that Anakin's place and journey in this has that very spiritual sense that just because they're gone doesn't mean they haven't stopped pulling for you, stopped cheering for you. You still have somebody on your side who's trying to help. And additionally, I heard, or I should say read some complaint where people said, oh, well, why would Anakin appear to Ahsoka while Luke's over there building up his Jedi temple? Number one, We don't know that he didn't. That's just another story we haven't seen. Maybe he did. Who knows? 
But additionally, even if he never did, his story with Luke is resolved. Anakin's getting the moment with Ahsoka that he really wanted. The the coming to terms, coming to peace. Luke got that with Vader. Luke's the one who brought him back that made his appearance in the world between worlds even possible. In a sense, right? That's that's how I look at it. Luke made this possible. So it's like, in a sense, Anakin, you could even reason out, doesn't really need to go back to Luke because Luke and him are cool. Like things are good sort of thing. And if Anakin doesn't even come back in the next uh, in the next season of Ahsoka or whatever other project Ahsoka is going to be featured in, that's fine by me because his story with Luke is done to a large extent. And now his story with Ahsoka is as resolved as it needs to be. So I just wanted to inject that that two cents in there. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. And again, I think you did a great job of showing the way in which the connection with Anakin and the Skywalker story all fits together really well. You know, absolutely. I, you know, Luke got his moment with Anakin, and if he never showed up again, it would be okay. Do I think that that was the case? No, I imagine those Force ghosts talking to Luke more than once, you know. So, but I just appreciate that we get that moment because it is all about Ahsoka being able to transcend from one spot in life to the next. And, of course, transcending into... In the same way that Gandalf did to a mm-hmm. basically a different type of character. Like she is more confident, more full of herself in, in the right way, more understanding of her place in the universe and, and her, you know, role as a Jedi, you know. And, and what I was most interested in, a couple of things that I think go with that. One uh, is it, that last fight that she has with Morgan Elsbeth, she ends up losing her shorter lightsaber. Yeah. So I'm very interested to see if she ends up building another one or does she end up maybe possibly um, building a different lightsaber so she only carries around one from now on. I'll be really interested to see that because I was surprised to see them, you know, take away one of her lightsabers. I was surprised to see Morgan Elsbeth die. Yeah. I I was like, oh, well, okay. I wasn't expecting that one. Um, But it wound up working really well um but what i really loved about that last thing is i think that people shortchanged sabine through the entire series but that last episode really was a payoff for her and her journey because the noble heroic choice to say no i'm going to stay back and i'm going to help she exhibited Jedi behavior in that moment, sacrificing herself, number one, to make sure Ezra gets home. That was the whole point. He had to get home, and then she can get away, but she chooses to sacrifice that and possibly herself for the sake of helping Ahsoka. That in and of itself, that that's a really great arc that that pairs up and dovetails into yeah. that very nicely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to dive into that. Um, I, I want to ask you one question just about the casting for 
Sabine. Uh, Natasha Liu Bordizio, I think that's how you'd say her name. Uh, but what did you think of her as Sabine? Did she bring her to life in the way that you would have wanted in the show? And then did you end up buying um, her as the character? Not at first. Not at first, I did not. But as Sabine found herself, and I started to see more of the Sabine that I felt I knew, I think that she did bring it there. And I had to sort of rewind it in my brain and say, okay, much like Ahsoka, Sabine is at a point where I don't recognize her because she doesn't recognize herself at this point. And then once she gets back into the swing of things, I go, oh, okay, I see Sabine. And so I would say that the pivotal point for me actually was the duel with Shin is where I felt I saw Sabine arrive in the series. And um, then to have it so heartbreakingly go to her making a terrible choice uh, for, you know, with, with, with Bale and Skull and everything. But that that's about the point where I really felt that the character came to life and the performance started working for me. And I, I'll fault it. It, fault is not the right word, but what I would fault is I think there was just some flow and some editing that could have been tightened to help out her performance. But then once again, once that engine started revving, then I was there with her. And by the end of the series, by the end of the season, I was like, okay, that's Sabine. I'm with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought, I think I'm a little bit different. I felt like that she to me, nailed the character pretty much right away. And um, part of that, I think, is I just, I guess I just bought in immediately uh, her indecisiveness of her place. And I, and I thought, of course, you know, the, the big thing of having made her, you know, Ahsoka's apprentice and, and having there been a fallout and basically having to spend most of the season you know, building that story to where we truly understand it. Um, but I, I really liked the actress. I just thought she did a great job of kind of bringing the brashness of Sabine um, and her uh, boldness, but also her um, her vulnerability to life really well. Uh, and, um, and I think it, I will 100% agree with you. I think it got stronger every single episode. You know, um, I think that was definitely something that we agree on in the sense that the the performance for her only got better uh, th throughout each episode. So I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, of course, I think the thing that kind of surprised everybody was this idea of, you know, Sabine as uh, a Jedi apprentice in the first place. Yep. And, you know, her... Uh, having the force abilities, which, you know, by the end of the season, we actually see her kind of unlock that ability that had always kind of been blocked. Uh, and I think part of that came down to Ahsoka finally confiding in her that I understand a decision you made. Because there was only one person in life who understood the decisions I made. And even if he didn't, he stood by me the entire time. 
And I'm going to do that for you no matter what from now on. And I think that finally gave her the ability to to let go, trust the force, and kind of unlock that thing that's always been inside of her that she's never truly been able to access because of all of the turmoil and the struggle she's been through in life. And I, I thought that this was a fascinating thing to have happen. Uh, I think it's obviously pretty clear that uh, Dave has probably been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, and I love the choice. I think it was a very interesting choice because uh, – we only know of one other Mandalorian Jedi in the first place, and that Mandalorian Jedi created the Darksaber. So to have this one be the second that we would see is fantastic. Well, I just can't wait for her to find out about what happens to the Darksaber and how mad she's going to be uh, when she finds out <laughs> about that. And be like, what the heck? You- Dang it, Bo! Well, you know, the uh, to <laughs> to borrow from the meme, you had one job – and um i i just enjoy what i enjoyed a lot about what they did with sabine is number 1 you know all of that stuff i said before number 2 they got an actress who was able to pull off the stunt choreography which i think is pretty darn important here agree agree but number yes. 3 those sneaky little rats with the establishment of Beskar removing the need for Sabine to have the little shields that she had in Rebels so that the audience that's coming to this show who came to it via the other live action streaming series as opposed to animation they 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 laid the foundation for Beskar being Beskar with that little trick and removing the need for the little arm shields, which I thought was just a very slick sort of thing for them to do. Because I think it winds mm-hmm. up one less visual element for people to nitpick, as it were. Because mm-hmm. it get, I, I think it just gives the actress the, uh, the, the opportunity to use her physicality. And I think they really had her use that physicality to great advantage. Um, in, in terms of the, the choreography and everything. Um, but what you said about, you know, Soka saying, even if he didn't understand it, he stood by me. That's another thing. And I, I know this rewinds a little bit, but that's another thing that I really like about the way Ahsoka uses Anakin to relate to Sabine. Is Ahsoka reminds us that Anakin was a good guy. He was actually a good, loving person for the most part. He was just broken inside and his emotions. Well, and he was a good master. Yeah. He he was actually a good teacher. Like, I would love mm-hmm. to hear somebody say, I'll stand by you no matter what decision you make. I, I might not understand why you're making that call, but so long as you're not going to kill every one of us. Okay, I got your back. Like, that's the type of thing that somebody needs to hear to have that confidence. And, you know, yeah. and Sabine needs to hear that. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. And I think, you know, it was it was a bold choice, I think, to do something unexpected. You know, we talked about the idea and aggressive negotiations of unexpected things uh, happening, you know, like in Mandalorian having... Grogu show up and and this was 
especially if you have seen the animated shows completely out of left field, completely unexpected. And at the same time, you know, we've seen Sabine having trained with a lightsaber before. We've seen her Mm -hmm. trained with a Jedi. You know, Ezra even makes an allusion to that idea. And so I think those are things that are really interesting. And to see, you know, Ahsoka take her under her wing and to help her uh, find a part of herself that she didn't know was there and, again, unlock that potential because apparently Ahsoka did believe in her that she had that ability and helped her find that was really, really cool. And like you said, who wouldn't want somebody in their life to believe in them in a way that helps them truly unlock their greatest potential? Uh, And I think that just kind of goes to show, you know, it brings me all the way back to the original Clone Wars movie where Anakin tells Ahsoka, you know, you wouldn't have made it as Obi-Wan's Padawan, but you just might make it as mine. Hmm. And, you know, uh, Sabine probably wouldn't have made it as anybody else's Padawan, but she just might make it as Ahsoka's. And I think that, again, you can see the ties that bind, right, between Ahsoka and Anakin, her, I mean, but you could also just see the ways in which she ties to other Jedi, whether it's Plo Koon or Obi-Wan Kenobi, like there's all of these connections that this character has and she's living them out. And I think it's just, it it makes for an incredibly cool story. As cool as another example of incredible mentorship that we see in the series, and that is, uh... Thrawn and Morgan Elsbeth. Thrawn really motivates Morgan to just go to that next level and achieve something that nobody would think was possible and travel to another gal. Of course, I'm jokingly putting it in a very positive light, but, you know, uh, I think that there, Star Wars has a, a history of highlighting that sort of balance between teacher and student. And I know that the very obvious one to go for would be to look at Balin and Shin because you have your, just like in episode one, you have your evil master and apprentice over here and you have your good master and apprentice over here. And you see how they sort of compare and contrast uh, in their styles and everything. But Thrawn, in a sense, is the ultimate teacher to everybody because he manipulates every last person in this series into doing exactly what he wants and he needs them to do even when they don't realize that they're doing it. Like Thrawn coming in in this way into this series and having the first ever live action Thrawn, a dream that has been in the brains of Star Wars fans since the early 1990s, for Pete's sake. You know, I, I I know I say it jokingly, but isn't, th- like, Thrawn the ultimate teacher here? Because he keeps laying out for everybody, this is how you do things. And then they wind up doing what he wants, or they wind up being leveraged into what, doing what he wants. You know, like, he, he always gets what he wants out of it. So there's this, this evil 
evil professor nature to him that I think is even greater than anything we saw in the animated series. Well, and I, I think the, the thing that really struck me about Thrawn's journey here is the way in which, you know, in Rebels, he was completely flabbergasted by the supernatural. You know, with Bendu, with the Jedi, he even talks about, you know, uh, you know, one Jedi thwarting his plans, mainly Ezra. Um, so what I love here is that you see him come to a place to which he has nothing and find a way to adapt himself to the situation he's in. But he also adapts himself by embracing the supernatural as a part of his plan because he's the one who woke up the Dathmiri great mothers. He's the one who uh, used them to contact Morgan Elsbeth, who is his plant in, in the, you know, quote unquote, regular Star Wars galaxy. You know, he's the one who has now been able to take into account the abilities of a Jedi and not take them for granted. So what we've seen here is not only a man who is able to learn about his enemy, but he's able to learn about his own shortcomings and work to correct them. And I think that's what makes him terrifying now is because, you know, it seems as though intentionally this has been about getting Thrawn to be the Thrawn we knew from the the Heir to the Empire books, where he had allied himself with George Sabath and, you know, understood, uh, you know, the ways in which the Jedi could be a threat to him and all of those type of things. But it's been a progression about getting Thrawn to that point as well, which... Dave never taking anything for granted and actually showing instead of telling us things. And so to uh, be on the journey with Thrawn in that is fantastic. It is. And it's it's fantastic. And one of the most lovely touches, I think, is seeing the way that he has constructed a cult, basically. That Thrawn, yes, he sees things. When we see him in Rebels, he doesn't understand the Force. He doesn't accept it. He does, you know, those sorts of things. This is crazy. This is dumb. This, uh, you know, ah, I can't get my. And now he just says, "Okay, all right. Well, this is just a factor that I didn't plan on. All right. So how do I adapt to this?" And he has a devoted following that he's he's kept going for some time. He has trusted lieutenants. He doesn't rule through fear the way that Vader did or the Emperor. He rules through loyalty and devotion to him. And he's willing to make alliances, like you said, with the Death Mary witches. And I think that you're absolutely right. And where I'm a little heartbroken is with Balin Skull, I thought we would eventually get to the place where he would be the Druus Sabath character that would be by Thrawn's side that he would have to keep in check that would go mm-hmm. nuts and become mm-hmm. the X Factor that would wind up ruining it all for him. 
I also think it's a shame that we're not going to get Rook. We already got Rook, but that was a function mm-hmm. of the fact that we got him because, again, Filoni never thought that he was going to get to tell this story in this way. Sure. So we have to adapt. And so he has Enoch. Enoch, right? That's how you pronounce it? Or is it Enoch? Enoch. Enoch? See, I won't say Enoch, but I, I've always been corrected because I was – I always want to say Gringotts instead of Gringotts, and my daughter always corrects the heck out of me for that. So it's just it's just me. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, when you bring up Enoch, I mean, you think of the fact that Enoch is one of the only characters in Scripture who doesn't die. Enoch is the undying one. Mm-hmm. He's the leader of Thrawn's undying troops who seem to be held together by the power of the Dathmeri witches. And, you know, you've got these night troopers as well. And so I think all of that, again, just goes to show this character who is willing to make deals with the devil at this point to get what he wants. Uh, And you almost know as well, if this is Thrawn, he has to have a plan for also taking them out at some point Mm -hmm. when he doesn't need them anymore, which I think is also fascinating because... You know, that's who this character is. So, no, I, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I think one of the things I appreciate is Dave taking the ideas of of the heir to the empire series and giving it, giving us just enough of it. But also, of course, we're in this place where we don't know what's going to happen. Which you know, it, it's it's the um, adaptation thing, and you you want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that appeases fans, but also gives them something to which they can't predict so easily. I always, but I always get it. It's so interesting to me that, that Thrawn himself says, you know, for the empire and this is going to sound weird, but now more than ever, the question is what exactly does that mean anymore? Because the empire was about devotion to Sidious, to Palpatine. Is this some sort of lever by which they know do the do the Death Miri have any aims on bringing Palpatine back? Because obviously we're already talking about reanimating the dead. What are we talking about here? Like we we've now opened up this doorway, all of these possibilities about things that can happen, and they've been transported back to the galaxy in which we know things are gonna happen. In another couple of decades, so it's it's pretty wild. Like we we've we've now. I hate the term, and I make fun of the term "subvert expectations," because I think that Thrawn's journey is an example of how you meet or exceed expectations. The way you would write in an employee evaluation, where he has a goal, we know what his goal is. But we don't know what that goal means. And we know from just this series, this season, that there is something additional. There's some additional meaning behind what he's going for. Oh, he's coming back and it's for the Empire. Okay, but what does that, what does the Empire mean at this point? And the fact that he's caught off guard by the fact that Balin Skull goes off on his own. And he's been used. Balin Skull has now used Thrawn to get what he wants. And that takes Thrawn off guard. So, like, that's really fascinating. 
because that shows, regardless of where that goes or resolves or anything like that, we've now already been shown that Thrawn can be outsmarted. It doesn't cost him anything right here, but Thrawn can be outsmarted. And as awesome as it is to see him and see him in play in live action and all that stuff, we've now been given that little seed. That little seed has been planted that Thrawn is not infallible, that there are things that he misses. Yeah, I think to, to, to go to your question specifically, Thrawn says for the protection of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things from the EU was always the idea that the Emperor had a reason for taking over and it wasn't just for his own power, but his consolidation of power so that they would be able to fight a force that was coming. And that was, of course, the Yuzhan Vong. And we know from, you know... um, Clone Wars panels that have happened. Dave talking about the idea that Yuzhan Vong were going to be a part of the Clone Wars in some way. They had, you know, drawings for them and, and doodles and stuff like that. Story ideas. So I am wondering if if that is Thwan's focus is trying to protect the galaxy that galaxy from the Yuzhan Vong specifically too, you have to remember is that, you know, the Chiss part of the galaxy is also a part of that galaxy. You know, it's difficult to get to, uh, but it's still a part of that galaxy. And therefore he would want to protect his own world, his own worlds uh, from, from an invasion like that as well. So I have no idea if that's the truth or if that's going to happen. But to me, them throwing in that line seems to indicate that Thrawn, for the Empire, that's what that means to him, uh, is is that. So, uh, and we do know from the books that are canon, uh, at least right now, you know, that, that Zahn wrote that have Thrawn in them, one of the reasons for him joining the Empire was for that specifically. Yeah for figuring out what was going on out there and for this threat that they felt was coming kind of thing. So I think all of that could be definitely part of this and who knows where we'll go, but it makes for fun speculation. Um, I just wanted to ask you a couple things about the Dathmiri specifically. Mm-hmm. The fact that we get the Dathmiri mothers, we find out that they originate in another galaxy. And basically, too, the interesting thing that we had three of them they have the threat of fate. They're basically the fates from great Greek myth. Man, I just love the way that Filoni, like George Lucas, loves to play with these type of archetypes and bring them into Star Wars and utilize them for their own storytelling. Yes, I agree. I'll throw on top of that that they're also like the three witches from Macbeth. And... That's how I see them more than even the uh, the the fates from Greek myth. I see them quasi betraying Thrawn in a similar fashion. You know, Macbeth cannot be killed by anybody born of a woman. Ah, I'm invincible. Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. Ah, oh, crud. Like, I see them playing that sort of role here. And they're literally Shakespearean in that sense to me. Um. You're right about the threat of fate. I'm not saying it's it's not mutually exclusive. I, I think, but I think that it's multi uh, 
you know, there, there are many angles from which this is coming. And, you know, theater nerd like me, yes, I, it's, it's wonderful. It's to sit there and just be like, yay, you know, like, and get that. And on top of that, having the Death Mary Mothers in there at all, name to me another live action series that has so embraced the idea that there are multiple ways to express the force and embrace the force and follow the force. It's crazy how expansive everything just became in the live action universe up to and including Ezra now initially refusing his lightsaber, right? Because Sabine offers it and Ezra refusing it at first is basically Ezra saying, "Eh, that's not necessarily, I don't really need that right now. It's okay. Like how, how amazing is that? Because not only do I not know what Ezra's been up to, why Thrawn didn't pummel the crap out of whatever region he was living in or try to hunt him down before this moment, or did he, you know, like all of that sort of story stuff that I know is still out there for us to tell. But like the Dathmiri mothers and Ezra, again, show us two ways of living with the Force. And what I love is that my f- fear is the wrong word, but one of the possibilities always was that when you start talking about the Yuzhan Vong, oh, there was no force to them. They were sort of like force exceptions sort of thing. To go to this other galaxy and find out that the Death Mary witches are there and that Ezra can still call on the force expands the force into more than just a uh, sci-fi, it's part of that galaxy concept to know it's a part of everything. Everything, everything concept. Um, sorry to ramble about that too, but like I think Ezra is no, an important no, counterbalance yeah. to the Death Mary Mothers yes. as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think one of the beauties of Ezra's journey is watching him, you know, having found the Noti, I think is how you'd say that, the, the, these beautiful little Rika. Uh, I call them fraggles. Yeah, that's basically what they look like. Uh, And, but like you said, living life without a lightsaber, living life with only the force. He even says the force is my ally. You know, he has learned to, I think in some ways, be what a Jedi was meant to be. You know, Mm -hmm. um, Balin calls him one of the Boken Jedi trained in the wild during the dark times. And, so they are, you know, we've talked about this on on aggressive negotiations, the way in which we felt like Kanan and Ezra basically became the Jedi, the Jedi were meant to be. Yep. You know, Kanan being able to have attachment without it ruining his life, being able to have a relationship with somebody like Ezra without it ruining his life, um, and them fully being able to embrace their missions uh, in a way that was incredibly beautiful and fulfilling and yet they still actually got to have real lives, right? That we would – and so mm-hmm. I think all of that was fantastic. And then speaking of lightsabers, watching him build a lightsaber that looked almost exactly like Kanan's just had me completely choked up because it was just an incredibly beautiful moment to have there. And then, of course, when you know Huang tells him, I trained Caleb. And I taught him how to build a lightsaber and 
there were two of these and I've kept this one. And it was just this incredibly beautiful moment. To, and again, it, it brings all of the stories together in a powerful, powerful way. And it it's all encapsulated in the journey that Ezra has been taking. And part of that journey is so beautiful because the casting of Ezra, I think, is perfect. They nailed it so perfectly yep. and it was so key his voice his look his physical mannerisms i immediately while well, i said and it, this is no disrespect to the actress while it got while it took me time a little bit to get there with sabine and i acknowledge that part of that is because she was working through a thread where she was coming from a place where i had to experience her where she wasn't fully herself yet Ezra, we fast forward past all of that part, and all I could see was, okay, that's Ezra. That's there he is. He is live on screen. That's him. I fully, fully uh, accept it. And he even looks a little like his dad, which is pretty cool. Um, but the. The whole Ezra thing, to your point about, oh, I trained Caleb and I held this just in case he ever needed one. Well, of course he didn't, um, or at least he couldn't ask for it. There's a an echo, I think, that most might miss in that Luke's saber in Return of the Jedi looks like Obi-Wan's. Ezra building a saber that looks like Kanan's is an echo of that. And I found that to be particularly beautiful, whether it was intentional or not. Even though the line in Return of the Jedi is much like your father's, and I think it was a leftover from when they had fake scripts laying around and all of that stuff to to lead people away from the idea that, that uh, Vader was his dad. I think it's a very neat parallel that you wind up making a saber that is an echo of your teacher. I don't know that I saw that with Sabine, though. Her saber didn't really look like an echo of uh, Ahsoka's. So, Well, and that's that's because her saber was given to her oh, by that's Ezra. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, she hasn't had a chance to build that's one yet. That's right. So. so hers, if she builds yep. one, will wind up look. See? Yeah, that, most likely. But those are the beautiful Which visual the cues. Which brings the whole question of does Ahsoka get to build a new lightsaber kind mm -hmm. of thing? Like, and so yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, and it's but but those are the beautiful sort of little visual winks that mean so much to a longtime fan, and that's why I was so happy to yep. see it. Well, and I think the beauty is too just watching Ezra be able to be reunited with. Uh, Ahsoka, you know, who mm -hmm. had told him to find her when he could. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the show, to have him reunited with Hera, which mm. is his mm -hmm. space mom, you know, was incredibly powerful. And so to watch his journey, you know, I think the one thing that this season does in so many ways is to really set us up to, to be excited about what's coming next for Ezra in... You know, whether it's Ahsoka season two or whether it's, you know, whatever they end up doing, uh, you know, I, I can't wait to see what's next because, it, you know, 
I think you are 100% right. The, the, the casting for him was just absolutely perfect, and I want more of him, which, you know, in all honesty, I felt like with Hera's journey and the casting of her with a Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who is also married to none other than Ewan McGregor, Who's so none other it's all in the, the family. Than the nephew of Dennis Lawson. <laughs> exactly. So it's all in the family here, but man, I thought she did a great job. Yep. Of pulling off Hera in a way that made her completely believable. And there was just this twinkle in her eye that she had. This, this, you know, I loved her as Hera. I thought she was great. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a huge critic because Hera is actually one of my favorite all-time Star Wars same, characters. Same, same. And, and so I thought she did such a great job. I agree. And I think she got her vocal inflections and her speech patterns right. It doesn't need to be the exact same voice, but she got the manner of speaking correct. I think that Mary Elizabeth Winstead did her homework, knew the cadence by which Harris should speak, and also got the body language right, which is a weird thing to say because yes. Harris animated before this, but the way she would stand was very much the way that Harold would stand. I believe that was Hera. And also, I think that moments where she shined included when she would interact with Carson. And that was the Hera interacting with somebody else that I'm used to. Whether it was Hera interacting with Lando or Hera interacting with, um, you know, anybody, that's the Hera that I saw. And as silly as this might sound... Hera and the way she interacted with Chopper. That was Hera and yeah, Chopper. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. I just keep I, your lid on, Chopper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I still <laughs> I'm still laughing about where Chopper is looking for the um, you know, the homing beacon. And he's sitting there, and you can tell what he's saying is like, Did you move my stuff? I you know, he's just like, No, just fine. He's like, somebody moved my stuff. You know, he does that little like hands on his side sort of move Mm -hmm. where he's like you and you can tell he's saying he's like, somebody was in here and somebody moved my oh, there it is. Right? Like ah the way she interacted with Chopper was the biggest selling point for me between the two of them. And very key to making that character work. Well, and I think you know, on top of that, one of the things that we see her you know, she's very similar to what we saw. You know, she's still somebody who's willing to break the rules if it, she thinks it's the right thing. She She's willing to thumb authority if she feels like it needs to be done. You know, her friction with the New Republic, um, the, the way in which, you know, she has this relationship with Mon Mothma who's trying to cover for her, but there's only so much the Chancellor can do because they're a government of laws, you know, and, and what I was most interesting is watching Kaz's father from Star Wars Resistance be such a complete and utter tool in this show, which is one of the places where, you know, this show subtly lets you know where this series is going in this, and well, the Star Wars series in general, where un- what happened with uh, the New Republic is already started. You know, where we're not willing to take seriously the threats that are coming, you know, and we're not willing to to be serious in that way about galactic safety. 
Yes. Uh, and and Hera, of course, being on the forefront of like, no, we've got to make sure that if there's any chance, you know, that we're we're doing everything we can to make sure that chance doesn't come to fruition. Yes, I, I never watched the entire run of Resistance. So there's that being Kaz's father. All I know is that he is a good character to act as what I think George Lucas would have had as, you know, forgive the language, the type of douchebag that would ensure that the First Order would be able to rise because he would be yes. sniffing his own farts and uh, unable to see past <laughs> his own ego. Um, so he's very effective with that. And what is... I really enjoyed the idea that what they laid out there was that it's one thing to fight against the government. It's another thing to govern. And that is a very difficult thing. And it's where a lot of revolutions fall apart. And I like and appreciate the fact that we're seeing the revolution having a hard time taking over and running things because they suddenly find out, how are you going to pay the bills? How are you going to keep things running? How are you going to make sure that everybody's lights stay on, that it's not glamorous and that you're going to have people? And what I like about him is that he takes the place of, if you want to get back to the Air to the Empire sort of stuff and the other 1990s Expanded Universe stuff, he takes the place of Borsk Felia, who was yes, the douchebag exactly. from that era. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, a character you love to hate. Um, yeah, until finally in Star by Star, he gets what he deserves. But, you know, whatever. It's cool. Yeah. So... Uh, a couple of other characters that are really important to talk about are Balin and Shin and their journey. Mm-hmm. And I found them to be utterly fascinating. And part of that is because their paths diverge. And mainly, like you mentioned earlier, is that Balin has been using this whole thing to get to this place because he is somebody who apparently is a, is a student of the stories of the Jedi. The same type of stories that Huang was, you know, telling Ahsoka. And he believed them. And one of those stories seems to specifically be about the Mortis gods. And the fact that we, you know, see him on an Argonoth of the father right next to the son and the daughter whose face has been destroyed. I I think it's it's fascinating. And... Because he even says to Shin that what he longs for is not power that would come from what Thrawn is trying to do. But he seeks to bring an end to the cycle of war fully. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, is what he's after this idea of bringing balance the same way the father offered Anakin to do? Is, Is that where he thinks he's going? I think that he might think that, but I see him as a very 
and I mean this as an ultimate compliment, a very Dooku type of character. Dooku's goals you could understand in a sense. Dooku wanted to end the corruption and ineptitude of the Republic. He wanted, he honestly wanted there to be more order and seriousness and focus to everything. And it became an obsession and it led to, you know, hijinks. I see Balin in the same light. Balin like any other idealist who has had their heart broken, like Saw Gerrera, what he wants, what he believes he wants is not a bad thing. But he's going about it completely the wrong way. And he's so blinded by it that he's willing to make those little compromises and say, yeah, I know this is not the right way to do it, but it's what's got to be done. I got... I. You know, you got you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. I think that if anything, where I see him going is he's getting a call where he thinks he can be imbued with the ability to end Thrawn. And the like, basically, I think he wants to usher in a golden age that where, again, and here's the flaw with the thinking, the right people can run everything. That's always the downfall. Oh, this revolution is so the right people can run everything because the people who are running it are bad. Everybody can agree on that one. Everybody sucks. Everybody in the pulling the levers of power, they're terrible and they're selfish. But then who do you quote-unquote replace them with? And is it an improvement? I think Balin is chasing after this idea that he knows the right way that things should go. And he will... But you know what? Let me throw this out there to you. Do you think it's possible that Balin is a, uh, a nihilist? That he wants to wipe it all out? There's there's almost a part of me that wonders, is he the one that's thinking the only way for this to be peaceful is for everything to get leveled? I, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I think, honestly, this is my guess as to what's happening, is that it's actually the son, not the father, that has tempted him here. Uh, and that... He has been promised this thing that, mm -hmm. to which he has always longed. Like he said, he loved the idea of the Jedi, but not them in action, basically. And so, to me, that's where I see this this mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. And I think you're bringing in the idea of him basically being like a Dooku-type character, who gets so wrapped up in his own ideology that he can't see the forest for the trees and then, you know, ends up getting himself destroyed is exactly what's going to happen. Because, And part of that is what I find interesting is that Shin and Balin are two sides of, a, of the same coin of people who try to pursue power. 
She just wants power for power's sake. She wants to be able to rule. She's tired of being on the run. You know, she... That's what I got out of her. Whereas Balin, on the other side, wants a power to be able to control everything and but to use it to make it better and so it's the two sides of the same coin and i just found that really interesting in that master apprentice relationship see i see shin a little bit differently than you do i see shin as more like anakin than dooku in that shin I know nothing about her history, but the way that she's played comes across to me as somebody who Balin took under his wing, but her motivation was that she wants to have the power not to feel helpless or pain. Like, she doesn't have a grandiose plan. I don't see her having a grandiose plan. I see her having a smaller scale plan, the ability to control her own fate. Because when we get along, he has to he has to say to her at one point, I trained you to be more than this. I think, to your point, if Balin is tempted by the sun, maybe he sees Shin as taking the place of the daughter. Or he sees himself as the father and her as the daughter and whomever else as the son. Right? And what I love about this entire discussion is it has nothing to do with Death Stars. It has nothing to do with Death Star technology. It has nothing to do with Star Destroyers with Death Star guns. It has everything to do with this mind-blowing, wild concept that you're going to step into... In ex- a reality beyond our reality, beyond anybody's reality, where you will have the fate of everything, including the midichlorians, under your control. Like, this is Star Wars getting weird. Really weird. And Star Wars is awesome when it's weird. Uh, yes. I could not agree with you more. And, and I think that's what made that ending with both of them so incredibly fun. You know, especially with Balin, where we, you know, he's talked about this, this idea of this power that uh, he is, he has felt, you know, that he's been alluding to this, this whole season. And now to find out what that is just blows my mind. And I can't wait to see what comes next with that, because, you know, I think it's, it's going to be awesome in that. And so, um, and I thought, you know, the hardest part about this too is that um you know unfortunately ray winstone ray stevenson has di- has died and um for me i think his story seems to be important enough that they're going to end up having to recast him um we've so we've, we've gone back and forth on that we have and behind the scenes I, yes <laughs> behind the scenes we've gone back and forth on that and all i will say is that i will trust them to make a decision that makes the most sense for the story yes, i agree but it would not be the first time that i have been in love with a property where tragedy befell 
mm-hmm. and they wound up having to yeah. transfer somebody's story arc to someone else. And that's okay by me because so long as you can find a way to convey the point of that story arc. But I'm also not opposed to recasting roles. For instance, and I know that I think you and I disagree on this. I like Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Dark Knight more than I liked Katie Holmes in Batman Begins. Well, I mean, everybody liked Maggie Gyllenhaal more than they liked Katie Holmes. You know, I actually... I, I always have trouble remembering who, but there is... There is someone that I'm connected to that really disagrees with me about that one. So, I mean, I, I never personally you know. loved Maggie Gyllenhaal or, or either of them, but I thought Maggie Gyllenhaal was way better. Anyway, that's totally different. Totally, podcast, totally but, different thing. Yeah. I, it basically, just to say, recasting works. It's fine, but of course, it also it also opens up the whole other thing: is why can't we just go ahead and recast Luke and Leia at this point? Like. When is that? Well, when is it going to be yes. okay to do that and necessary to do that? But you know, different side. Well, I, side I think uh, that uh, you know one of the things on this is that um, you know the, the same thing. Uh, you know, of course, Michael Gambon just passed away, uh, and mm-hmm. terribly sad. But you know, he replaced Richard Harris as Dumbledore. You know, that's true. Um, and Dumbledore was, of course, a character you had to have, and so that'll be really interesting in this. Is this a character where Dave has to have them for the story or is it something like you said where you could transfer to another character? And that's just the question that only Dave can answer. So. Or you could have something happen where he has to wear a mask. Yeah, okay. there you go. Good happen. Right. So, Problem solved right there. Um, I wanted to ask you about the production of this show because we've talked about all of these Disney Plus shows at this point. And, you know, we have definitely been up and down with the production, you know, all the way from – yeah, with our complaints about Kenobi and or the the Book of Boba Fett to our praise for something like The Mandalorian when it's been really good or, of course, Andor. And so where did Ahsoka land for you here with, you know, its production value? Overall high marks. There were moments where the volume exhibited its limitations. And that's okay. Because there are certain things that you cannot do practically, whether it's rendering a... Purple Forest. I know it wasn't purple, purple, but, you know, it was that sort of like magenta-ish, purple-ish sort of thing. Um, So there are locales that cannot exist outside of, um, you know, a soundstage. So that's fine. Uh, But there are things that work really well, like space hyenas, which are my new favorite thing, and I want one. Like now, and I'm not talking about the toy. I want a space hyena. I'll be very disappointed if I don't get one for Christmas, as a matter of fact. Um, Because that's the type of whimsical Star Wars sort of thing that I love most of all is is those sorts. Or the fraggles or whatever they're called. The the little rock creatures. The noli. Yeah. Fraggles. The noti. Excuse me. Yeah. The fraggles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Overall, I thought the production was really good. I would never eat on a table that came out of the floor because my feet were just on that. Same. And what kind of savage Same. is doing this? This is this is not a bit either. This goes back to when I saw The Force Awakens. Matt, 
you can attest to this. I was aghast at the fact that Ray chewed with her mouth open. I was, come on, table manners matter even if you're growing up in a hollowed out at-at in the middle of the desert. This, this matters, folks. Um, I thought that was such a neat, cool thing where it's like, oh, the table comes out of the floor. And it wasn't until like two seconds into it where I was like, oh, my God, they eat off of that. No. No, I can't allow that. Have it come from the ceiling or something. That's the only Maybe way it's that it's a self-cleaning floor. No, it's in my head at that point. Like I can't, I can't get it out of my head. Um, but production value-wise, overall, I thought this show was like a solid four, four and a half out of five sort of thing. There were certain things where the limitations of the volume, the depth wasn't there that I that I wanted, but that's okay because if doing that meant I got the show as opposed to not getting the show because it would have been too expensive, uh, okay. And as Star Wars fans, we always love to cite that Lucas himself says, oh, the story is what has to work and the, the effects are secondary. Well, that's true, then I'm not going to harp on the effects. So, overall, I thought they were fantastic. There were some shortcomings here and there, but Mm -hmm. what about you? Yeah, I thought that this was a great show in production value. I thought that they did a very good job. Like you, obviously, there are some limitations, I think, that come in, um, And part of that happens to be the volume. And, you know, there are places where, you know, when you're doing this type of show, you're not able to just go and shoot anywhere, you know, to get uh, the live action plates or anything. You know, you're you're on a stricter budget, so that's going to happen. And yet I loved the whimsy of this show the way it brought references to things like of course lord of the rings we talked about the dark crystal i thought you know the bringing to live action of huang and the t6 shuttle was phenomenal Uh, bringing in the purgle into to live action again phenomenal stuff like looked so good and I, I I thought that they did a really good job with the look of this show. I thought that it felt very similar uh, to what you would want to see. I, I, I was really impressed for the most part. Uh, and, you know, that's something that's really important, I think, with these Star Wars shows. Because, you know, Star Wars set the bar for what things look like. You know, of always pushing the boundaries and trying to do it really well. And I I think this show did a great job. I think all of the uh, directors did a great job of bringing the episodes to life. uh, And the the cinematography in the show looked really good. I thought the lighting specifically was really well done. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so, and I think all of that really helped. And so, yeah, to me, the production value of the show was very strong. Uh, you know, uh, keying on something that you said, the weakest moments, visual effects, compositing, you know, uh, rear screen projection wise, whatever, 
of this show are stronger than Mandalorian season three or Book of Boba Fett. And I think that's important to note because they're relatively contemporaneous. And so the decisions made for this series, I think, are stronger than some of the decisions made for those two seasons of those shows. And I think it shows a very thoughtful aspect, but also an aspect of some attention to detail that was taken that was very necessary. Mm -hmm. Some lessons learned, as it were. The music here in this season is by Kevin Kinder, who, of course, did the music for the Clone Wars and the Bad Batch. And uh, and so very familiar uh, with all of these characters. Uh, and what did you think of, you know, his take here, specifically giving us a lot of, I would say, Kurosawa-influenced music as well as some beautiful renditions of themes we heard in Rebels as well as the Clone Wars? Loved it. And was completely sold. I read some reactions where people didn't care for it. But when in the very first episode, when Balin's walking down the hall, having his own murder express moment, and we have those discordant piano strikes happening while he's walking through, I thought it was a very bold choice. And I was immediately hooked on the music. And... This is one of those rare series where I wasn't waiting for a stinger, but I would let the end credits play because I was enjoying the music enough. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely agree with you. I think, you know, one of the beauties of Kiner is the fact that he completely understands Star Wars. He understands its music. Um, but he also understands pushing the music of Star Wars because he's been doing it since the Clone Wars began. And that's what George was asking for. And I think he 100% delivered it. And so I think the music here was fantastic because I, I think in many ways it fits exactly the type of things that Dave is interested in. The same way that the music fit what George was interested in when he wanted it, but then what he wanted for the Clone Wars, right? Like Again, it's all working together here, and I thought he did a really good job because I thought it was a great mixture of the things that we have heard before and, and know from before, but at the same time creating something that feel, felt very real and right for this show. And part of that is that you actually, you know, if you've seen Rebels, you've seen the Clone Wars, what you are going to want as a fan, you are going to want a mixture between all of those things. And I think Mm -hmm. the beauty is, is that uh, Kiner delivers, you know, I mean, he even delivers in that scene where we go to Coruscant, there's going to be the Senate hearing. And the music there is reminiscent of things you would heard would have heard in the prequels yep. when you're on Coruscant. So it's like the guy gets it, and that's what you want. So 
One last question for you, John, is the the question of ending on this cliffhanger where Ezra has made it home, but Sabine and Ahsoka are left in the other universe. And how do you feel about that? Do you feel like you wanted a season two? Do you want this to move into a movie? Uh, What are you kind of feeling now tell you know search your feelings whatever they're going to give me i want it as soon as they can deliver it let's just let's let's cut the foreplay here let's just get to it okay i don't want to dance around it i don't want to i don't want endless articles for 6 months about what they're thinking of doing make you know what this strike you had time to think through it Tell me what type of project you want next and make it happen because let's get there because I don't want the, uh, the, the iron to cool on this one. I want to go for it. I want to go for it big. I want to go for it as quick as I can. If you asked me what I prefer a movie versus a season of an, you know, of the show, Honestly, I'd love another season, specifically because I'd get more time to develop things. A movie, you have two hours, and you have to take into account that there might be people who didn't watch this. That's tough for me. I enjoyed spending time with Thrawn. I enjoyed spending time with Sabine and Ahsoka and Ezra and everybody else. Please, I think that contrary to the MCU, Star Wars has figured out how to make episodic television work. I'm okay with sticking here, but I will take whatever they want to give to me. That's where I stand. I find myself in the same position as you. You know, I'm I'm willing to take whatever they give me. Um, I, I think that the thing that I, I would like most, in all honesty, like you, is to have it be another season of television. Um, and, and for the same reason that that you want that, right? Which is, I, I think that's the, the that would be the most fulfilling way to see the next part of this story. Because I feel as though... We need another season to be able to get us to the point where you would jump off into a film. Because I don't see how a film does a great job in a couple of hours of telling the story of what Ahsoka and Sabine are up to on top of where, you know, (laughs) we are with uh, Ezra and the New Republic. And so I I feel like the, the next season needs to kind of bring us back all together so then we can bring it into a film. But at the same time, I just want more of this story. So please, mm-hmm. just give me more of the story, and I'll be happy. So, John, I am very interested to see then where you will land on your ratings for Ahsoka. It's honestly a tough call, because those first couple of episodes, I was a little dicey like i i enjoyed them but i was like okay you know sort of finding our way sort of thing but you cannot undervalue a strong ending 
I'll make a Star Wars reference here. Whatever problems anybody might have had with the Phantom Menace up to a certain point, once the doors open and Darth Maul is standing there, everybody was all in. This series is much the same way, where there might be quibbles I have here and there, but once a certain threshold was reached, I was all in and going away. There's a thing where you get inside your own head and you say to yourself, well, I don't want to give it this because I'll feel, I'll feel too much like a fanboy. Or I don't want to feel like, I don't want to give it this because I'll feel like I'm too much trying not to be a fanboy. But you know what? In all honesty, I'm okay being a fanboy here. Because while the ending was, there were things that could have been done better in the first three episodes or so. Once I hit episode five, it was must-see TV for me. I had to see it the minute it was released, or as close to as I could. So I'm going to wind up giving it a four and a half, with a possibility it could go up to a five. 4.5 for me. Yeah, I like I like the way you put that, because I, I do think that there are a couple of things here and there um, where... You know, I, I think I might have, have done, uh, I might have done things differently or, you know, whatever. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I find myself being with you that this is, this is just a great series. And I really, I really enjoyed it, you know, like I, I had... I had such a good time watching it and I found myself so invested with, with what was happening and, and in, you know, where we were going with things and, you know, what was happening with these characters and, and all of it that I, I can't, I don't know why I wouldn't give it a five. Like, and part of that I think is, is like, you know, I I think you're, you're right. You know, there's there's a fanboyness to that, you know, um, but I'm also going to be OK with being a fanboy because I am a fanboy like I I love Star Wars. Right. And I love. Um, I love Star Wars. Right. And I love what all of these stories. I love all the stories that this is building off of. I love all the ways in which we've been, you know, getting these stories and, you know, this just brings all of that together. And how could I not be excited about that? Um, I just, I, I, like, how could I complain, you know? And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm going to go with a five. So, um, John, wow. uh, you know, if, yeah, people wanted to catch up with you then and uh, see what you've got going on. Where would they find you? You know what? Before I go, I'm going to change things. I'm okay. going to go with a five. Oh, man. What, really? I'm going to change it. You know what? Because I'm getting too much in my head. I give it a four and a half because of like, eh, eh, mealy mouth. I'm going to change it. It's a five. And if you want to have a problem with the way I came to that uh, conclusion, you can go ahead and find me as Kessel Junkie online. Uh, you can find me uh, lurking around there, primarily on Twitter because I can't quit it. I don't know why. It's like a drug. 
And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network. And uh, I'm on two shows there. One of them is called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors. That's with uh, Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser. And you can find me over there as well on Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with you, Mr. Matthew Rushing. Well, and I do hope that uh, people will find that show. Uh, Of course, you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. And you can also find me here on the network with a bunch of other shows, Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And outside of aggressive negotiations over on the Nerd Party Network, you'll find me doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. So thank you, though, so much for joining us. And may the Force be with you. Thank you.